The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Thanks for joining us whenever and wherever you are doing so. Um, I have noticed that some people listen like moments after this thing releases. So uh, if that's you, I appreciate your enthusiasm. For those who listen much later, hopefully you'll still get value out of the show. I know Jim's got some some questions piled up from us uh, for us. I'm not going to comment on the quality of those questions because when I've done it in the past, he felt too much pressure in coming up with good questions. So all I know is there's some questions that we're going to tackle today. I'm sure we'll start out with some Social Security and Irma because that's kind of our shtick these days. But uh, yeah, that's about it. We have a fairly limited time frame here, so I'm not going to babble along any longer. Um, Jim, I see you've unmuted your microphone, so you must be antsy I to did. talk. I'm ready. I we'll won't. jump right in because I know yeah. we are another tight time today, folks. Yeah. It is Friday afternoon, early afternoon, and Chris and I have 604 things to do before 5 o'clock. All right. This, uh, no hint, so it saves a little time. They're from the, the good state of Texas. I thought this one would be interesting, Chris. It actually came in. It's technically, we could call it the new question of the week as well, because it came in this week. I don't think we ever answered a question on this before. It's a Social Security question, but I'm not sure we ever had one like this before. So that's kind of why I jumped it to the top of the list, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Since my brother retired last year at age 63, this year he plans to move out of the United States. He's going to Vietnam, if that makes a difference, he said. He is planning to get married in Vietnam. They are the same age. I assume his wife will be entitled to a spousal Social Security based on his record. However, I'm not sure if it can be applied to someone who is not a U.S. citizen or not even a permanent resident of the United States. I think she has no plans to ever move to the United States. I really appreciate it if you can explain the policy 
of Social Security, which applies to a non-resident of the United States. I don't think we ever had this question or a similar question to it before. I don't think we have either. I think this is a this is a good question for that reason alone that it's brand new, fresh on the show. Um, Hence the new question of the week. Yeah. So this one is going to vary a little bit uh, based on circumstances. The answer to this. A, uh, you do not have to be a U.S. citizen to receive Social Security benefits. If we want to start at the highest level, that is not a requirement. Uh, There's many people who come to work here are not citizens, are assigned a Social Security number, work at a job where they pay into Social Security. And if that happens for a long enough period of time, they qualify for a benefit and they can receive a, a benefit. So there's no requirement of citizenship for Social Security. Participation in Social Security or qualifying in another way is required for Social Security benefits. So in this case, uh, spousal benefits, which is what they're talking about here, for spousal benefits, the general rule is you have to be married for one year and then have to be of age to claim spousal benefits, which would be age 62 by default, and 62 or older, which they are, said they were, brother was 63 years old, and the person he's thinking of marrying is the same age, so the age is met there. The number holder, the person receiving the benefit upon which the spousal benefits are based, has to have claimed their benefit. He sounds like he's going to claim his benefits. Um, um, And then uh, beyond that, though, there's some extra qualifications. If they are not a citizen or resident of this country, then things get a little more restrictive for these auxiliary benefits, we'll call them. Spousal or survivor benefits are part of this group of auxiliary benefits. The child benefits would also be the same. So these auxiliary benefits, um, when you go to another country, it's going to be determined by a few things, whether that spouse, that new spouse, A, They'd have to be married for a year, first of all, because just the basic requirements of spousal benefits require you to be married for one full year first. But then they're going to run into trouble. The second requirement is going to have to be that that uh, citizen of another country that he's marrying, they had to have been uh, lived in the United States with the American spouse for at least five years doesn't, I don't believe, has to be five years continuously. But right there, this is going to start to fall apart for them because they said this person's in Vietnam. doesn't sound like they've been together here. It would just be over there and they have no intention of moving here. So if they moved back here and once they'd been here for a while, I think that's going to unlock the door. But um, the uh, right now it's starting to falter as far as uh, eligible. But the other requirement is that the citizen or resident of that other country, that other country has to have a treaty or a social security agreement with the United States where they kind of honor each other's retirement systems is kind of what those treaties do. And it's going to be vary from from uh, country to country. And simply because I've personally been to Vietnam before and as part of that was interested in some of these details, like, you know, what is the relationship between Vietnam and the U S on some of these things regarding my work and retirement planning? 
I know uh, right now off the top of my head that Vietnam is not one of the countries that has a social security agreement with the United States. So that also is going to cause this to fall apart. So based on what he's sharing in this case, no, I don't think the brother's new spouse in Vietnam is ever going to qualify for social security spousal benefits. If he brought the spouse back here, then that starts to change. The the spouse doesn't need to be a citizen, but being outside of the country, never being here, never been here, never lived with him here, that's where things really just aren't going to meet the level required for qualification. Um, So there's some very specific publications by Social Security uh, regarding this. Um, Let me see if I can dig one up real quick. Um, what I would do is just Google or go to the social security website and look for benefits when you're outside the United States. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, and the first one that came up when I looked is a, a pamphlet called your payments while you are outside the United States. That's going to be one, but this one's really relative to uh, social security spousal uh, agreements, but uh, social security, the on their website, the area where you look this up is called international programs. I just went there and it lists all the countries with a social security agreement with the United States. And you'll clearly see on there, Vietnam is not one of them. Um, and then they talk about all the details regarding this, uh, these unique circumstances when you've maybe worked in multiple countries or you're from one of these countries and you worked here for a while and then went back and you earned a partial benefit here. And does that count? And all this kind of stuff. That's all under the international programs page of, uh, the social security website. But in this case, I have unfortunately some bad news. I don't think this person's going to qualify. That's you, Jim. Okay. That was my cue. That's I know. And then I had so to unclick. I, I abruptly turned to a stop. So. <laughs> takes me a while to do that. All right. I think I found that interesting. Hopefully other people did. It applies to a very, very small subset of people. But True. every once in a while, it's good to kind of learn something like that, that even though you may never, ever use it, now you know it. This next question came from 2021. So talk about mm-hmm. going back and, and finding old questions. Um, so we'll go from the new question of the week that just came in and now we're reaching all the way back two and a half, three years ago. (laughs) Okay. 2021. Um, literally almost three years ago because it was November of 21. Nice. I hope it's a good one. They've been waiting a long time. Hope it's still relevant. Actually not three years, almost a little bit more than two years old is what I meant to say. Okay. Someone did the math and corrected me on it. Uh, and I feel bad because he definitely tried to get his question answered sooner rather than later. Uh, he begins, uh, no state hint. Um, at least I don't think there's a state hint. No, no state hint. I'll give you a hint. Chris, you'll nail this. New listeners, you might not get this. He lives in the state I grew up in. Well, most of us. No, that's Massachusetts, even if we hadn't listened very long, just from your accent. But it could have been a new listener who had no idea I'm from Massachusetts. Okay, he begins. He's George. And then he goes, go Pats, Red Sox, Celtics, and Bruins. He's just throwing them all in there. Um, 
And no, most of the time in the past, people would say, go Pats, and I would elevate their question and answer it sooner rather than later. But that don't work since Brady left and the Pats started to suck and win. And now Belichick is gone. So we'll see how Gerard Mayo does as a coach. All right. Anyways, this is an Irma question, Chris. Trust me on it. Okay. But he begins. Regarding required minimum distributions and Roth conversions from from already taxed dollars in my traditional IRA. Hmm. If I've already taken required minimum distributions and made some Roth conversions under the pro rata rule, can I now convert the entire remaining already taxed amount in a single transaction? Well, I'm not quite sure what he's asking there, Chris. I'll go. I'll circle back to that. Let me continue mm-hmm. reading to this Irma question. No, I'm sure. Isn't he asking the age-old question, can I convert just my after-tax piece leaving that's behind? That's what I'm afraid he's asking, but I was wondering if he – okay, if that's what he's asking, I was going to go back and try to reread it. Listener and listeners, if you have after-tax dollars in a traditional IRA, most IRAs have pre-tax dollars, as we know. The industry calls after-tax dollars basis, but they mean it more of after-tax basis. Dollars in an IRA that have already been taxed. You get them in there by making non-deductible contributions to a traditional IRA or from doing it in a 401k and then rolling them into an IRA. All your IRAs are considered one. Just keep that in mind. So your after-tax dollars and your pre-tax dollars, whether you have them in four different IRAs or one different IRA, are all going to be looked at as one. And the best analogy Chris and I use, and we did not come up with this, we got to give thanks to the man himself, Ed Slot. He just has the best analogy for describing what happens to your IRA when you put after-tax basis, if you will, into an IRA. If the after-tax basis is cream and your IRA is a huge pot of black coffee representing tax-free dollars, Chris, what happens the minute you take that little mini mooth thing at the at the cafe and you, you shake it and you pull that tinfoil top over and you get that half and half cream staring in the face, what happens the second you pour it into that cup of coffee? That cream just infuses throughout and suddenly you have light colored coffee, never to look the same again. And it is nearly impossible. I'm sure a chemist with a centrifuge and some chemicals could do it, but it's nearly impossible to separate the cream from the coffee. Every gulp of coffee you take from that point forward will contain some certain pot cream and some certain pot black coffee. Buy more black coffee than cream. We realize that. That mini-moo is like a half an ounce, not that big, but it spreads throughout your coffee. The second you put after-tax dollars into an IRA, no matter how small, it spreads throughout that IRA. In fact, it spreads throughout all your IRAs, even if they're at separate custodians. So if he is asking, hey, I've got some after-tax dollars in here. Can I just convert them? No. Case closed. Move on to the rest of his question. You cannot do it. You will always be subject to the pro rata rule. When you do a conversion, you will be converting mostly pre-tax dollars. We admit 
mostly black coffee, but there will be a little bit of cream, a little bit of after-tax dollars in every conversion. Now, there are ways to separate the cream and the coffee, but we've talked about them on the past. We'll talk about them again in the future. We ain't going to talk about them today. Let me get to his other question because it does have to do with Irma, I promise. Okay, where did I leave off? If I've already taken a few years worth of RMDs and made some Roth conversions under the pro rata rule, can I convert the entire remaining already taxed amount in a single transaction? I do want to clarify to him, though, if if you're going to claim to the IRS the only dollars in your IRA now are after tax, there's for some reason in your mind, there's no more pre-tax. Yes, you can convert after tax in one yeah, single that, transaction. That's not really possible to happen, though, because if he's been taking money out pro rata, the only it's way there could be nothing rent. left in there is if it's zero balance. So there's always going to be cream and coffee in there that's remaining. Unless he takes one of the actions, we're not going to go down um, right. and describe to separate. And it's them. hard, Chris, because we, we don't have – he doesn't give examples. Like, for instance, yeah. I put in this and I got that. Okay. So he's continuing. The result would be my traditional IRA – oh, well, here's the – I should have just kept reading. The result would be my traditional IRA would only be left – with tax-deferred dollars, pre-tax dollars. No, a, listen, you can't do it. Right. You cannot separate the cream from a coffee. It would have been a it's lovely world if that was allowed, yeah. <laughs> Always going to apply. Yep. Then he continues. Regardless of the answer to my above question, will those Roth conversions from non-pro rata already taxed, excuse me, yeah, already taxed dollars be part of my modified adjusted gross income and potentially subject me to Irma. So why did I want you to answer this? I thought personally it would be a good time for you to expand upon this. What is the treatments? Do Roth conversions of pre-tax dollars subject you to Irma? Would a Roth withdrawal of qualified tax-free dollars, Chris, subject you to Irma? Would those dollars subject you to Irma? Would the conversion of after-tax dollars, dollars that have already been taxed, the cream, if you will, will those dollars be put into your modified adjusted gross income for purposes of Irma? I thought we could take this question, which I apologize to people, was a little bit convoluted and not well-worded, but I think if you address those three scenarios, it could help people understand how taking money either out of an IRA or out of a Roth or converting will impact you with Irma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can talk about that. I think what will clear this up for most people and maybe answer the question more broadly even than focusing just on Roth activities and Irma First, everyone, IRMA, income-related monthly adjustment amount. That is the Medicare premium surcharge, which is assessed to you when you're on Medicare and you have a modified adjusted gross income above the limits. The limit's changing every year, so I'm not going to detail it. So this question, you know, this, this answer works no matter when you're listening. Um, 
The good news is the modified adjusted gross income. Everybody's probably, anybody who's done their own taxes recognizes AGI, adjusted gross income. It's a figure right on your tax return. Modified adjusted gross income is the measure that they use, which simply means we're going to take your AGI from your tax return and modify it in, in a certain way. There's not just one modified adjusted gross income globally throughout the whole U.S. tax system. There's different modified adjusted gross income measures depending on the rule that's being applied. And the rule here being IRMA, the specific MAGI, modified adjusted gross income, I'm going to start calling it MAGI for short, that applies is a simple modification. It is literally the AGI off of your tax return plus any tax-exempt interest that's on your tax return as well. That's the adjustment or modification you're going to make to get to the Maggie that's going to be used to determine your IRMA. Those of you who remember their tax return or have played around with their tax return at all realize that Roth qualified Roth distributions so that they're tax-free are not included in AGI. And since they're not considered tax-free interest either, they don't get thrust into your Maggie. A Roth conversion is reported as ordinary income for tax purposes and is included in your AGI. So to to the extent you do a Roth conversion in a particular year, it's going to be thrust into the Maggie calculation for your IRMA determination two tax years later. Because if you've been following the show or pay attention to IRMA, they apply it on a delayed basis because it takes them a while to get your tax return. And then use that to calculate your Maggie to ultimately determine your IRMA surcharges for a particular year. So there's a little delay in there. So um, Roth conversions of after-tax dollars, so that's what, getting back to his question specifically, if he's got after-tax dollars, which he's converting either pro rata, because he has to, or if he's got only after-tax dollars in his traditional IRA somehow and is converting them to his Roth, that is not income tax recognition there and thus is not in your AGI. Any portion of your IRA that is pre-tax or tax-deferred, that so most of the money that most people have in their IRAs being this type, When you convert that, you are reporting that as income just as if it was distributed out to you. You just happen to be converting it or rolling it over into a Roth or IRA as part of this process. That will get brought into your AGI and thus into your modified AGI. So I think that covers it, unless you wanted me to list some of the, you know, types of income that is in your AGI, but I think most people understand that this dividends, interest, uh, cap gains are going to be in your AGI, uh, social security payments, the taxable portion only of your social security payments are going to be part of your AGI, and thus your Maggie for uh, Irma, um, obvious income, salaries, hourly payments for part-time work, all that kind of stuff, distributions from your 401k, uh, IRAs that are traditional distributions, not qualified Roth distributions, are all going to be part of your AGI. All that stuff's in there, which is normally in your AGI, and then they add that tax-exempt interest if you have any, and that's what they use to determine your IRMA. All right, perfect. Is that comprehensive enough? 
I think it was. Hopefully people will appreciate your efforts. I certainly do. All righty. So we got a couple of emails about last from last week that I want to kind of address. Um, one came in. And this one, let's see. Did he give a state hint? I don't think so. Nope. But he said, uh, you made a rather sweeping statement about not naming a trust. This is going back to, I think, our EDU show we did earlier this week. Mm-hmm. You made a rather sweeping statement about not naming a trust as an IRA beneficiary, mm-hmm. or it could be considered a blunder using this case as an example. And the case he's talking about is the EDU showcase that we um, chatted about. Though I think you err similarly to the advertisement that all annuities are awful, there may be types of trusts as there may be types of annuities. And he is correct. I did make a blanket statement on that EDU show that you shouldn't name a trust as beneficiary of an IRA. And I stand by that. But it shouldn't have been sounding so um, permanent or so dogmatic. There are some trusts, and he pointed out, and trusts that we have talked about on this show plenty of times Mm -hmm. that are wonderful beneficiaries of IRAs. But they're not generally trusts that are used to establish protection and control of your wealth. They're trusts that are established to maybe uh, stretch an IRA, now that the stretch IRA for most beneficiaries has gone the way of the dinosaur. And you do have to have a charitable intent because ultimately the money will go to a charity, not to the beneficiary uh, at death of the beneficiary. So he did list the trust, charitable remained a trust. And he says, from all my research, reading and discussions with an estate attorney, and not an inexperienced one you referred to in the podcast. And he's referencing the estate planning attorney who put together, in our opinion, a terrible uh, estate plan for the uh, EDU show listener. A charitable remainder trust, or CRT, can work very well as an IRA beneficiary in my situation and perhaps many others. You seem to like succinct comments. So I'll leave it at that. You can review CRTs as an IRA beneficiary, though I think you likely know the benefits already. Mm-hmm. We've talked about CRTs on this show. He may mm-hmm. be a newer listener. I don't know. But we've talked about CRTs in the past on this show. And I did want to point out the gentleman is right. My rather blanket statement that you should never name a trust as beneficiary of an IRA except for protection and control. And then I tried to make clear that the cost of that protection and control is an insane amount of taxes. The CRT helps alleviate that. And we don't want to get deep into it. We've done shows in the past dedicated to CRTs. But I did want to acknowledge to this listener and to all listeners that there are some trusts, as he pointed out, the the people who blanketly say they hate all annuities or they hate all annuities in general, uh, overlook the fact that there are some annuities that are good. And by me saying you should never name a trust as beneficiary, it's, in his eyes, the moral equivalent. And I'm not going to argue that. I shouldn't have said that. I should have said 
CRTs are a wonderful trust to name uh, as beneficiary of an IRA, but they have a very specific purpose. They have a lot of strict rules with them, and it's not a way to pass. If you have a two, three, four million dollar IRA, you're not going to give your beneficiary two, three, four, five million and keep the money in a trust. It doesn't work that way. The CRT will give them income, uh, not necessarily a lump sum of money. Uh, and then at the death of the beneficiaries, if there's money left, and there's supposed to be, uh, actually speaking, there should be money left, uh, it goes to a charity at the death of the beneficiaries. So it can turn a, a big IRA into a steady stream of income to a beneficiary. And we have spoken about CRTs and Kratz and Kratz, which are versions of CRTs on the show in the past. Okay. Yeah, I think so in I the just, past, uh, we've oftentimes kind of had the modified disclaimer that you should never name a trust as beneficiary of our, an IRA unless you have full understanding of the implications and there's a very specific reason to do so. And I will admit in the EDU show, we kind of left that last part off, which is we've, we have kind of talked about it in that way because there are certain times when you could justify doing it as long as you do it correctly and you understand the costs and the ramifications of doing so. And I would put you know, CRTs as one of these very specific cases where if that's what you're trying to accomplish with your charitable intent and the income stream to your beneficiaries, et cetera, that can be a, a totally viable and worthwhile beneficiary of an IRA. Okay. So this next question that came in also in regard to that show kind of takes another view, not about CRTs, but codifies the view of trusts. So I had to reach out to this guy because of the way he explained some things in here. It made no sense to me. And then he gave me some clarification of what he meant. So I'll probably add the clarification as I get to the part, because if I just read what he wrote without clarifying, um, y'all are going to be saying he can't do that. He can't do what he just said he did. Okay. Uh, so I think we had this hint before he's from the state, Chris, with the lowest geographical point in all of North America. That would be Arizona. Well, again, we do not vet these answers. That might make sense because of the Grand Canyon. No, it's Death no. Valley. Well, according to him, the Death Valley is in California. Oh, well then. I thought it, I thought it, the lowest part, I thought it spread over into Arizona too, not just in California. And it, the lowest no spot is in Arizona. Okay. But Death Valley, it's that it's in Death Valley, the lowest spot. And I guess I'm geographically uh, confused Challenge? if, if, uh, if I thought that part of it was in Arizona, I, for some reason I did, but, but yes, Death Valley is what I'm talking about. So if it's California, I agree with him. And he is from Temecula, as I like to pronounce Temecula. Okay, so he said, I set up a trust with an attorney, and he told me, put all my assets into the trust, even my IRAs. Months later, I was talking with a CFP professional, and when I told him I put my IRAs in my trust, he freaked out and said, get them out of there. I thought he didn't know what he was talking about. An attorney knows much more than him, I figured. 
So I researched and found what the CFP told me was right. So I called the attorney to ask him why he told me to do that. And he told me, I'm not a tax attorney. <laughs> Needless to say, he's no longer my attorney, period. My gosh. I wow. learned my lesson. Always get an attorney that specializes in what you are dealing with. So he meant that in response to that EDU show. Now, the thing that you all might be thinking, and you too, Chris, you can't put an IRA into a trust. The I in IRA stands for what, Chris? Individual. And it's individual. an individual human with a lifespan. And it made no sense when he said, I put it in my trust. Then I was talking to a CFP months later, and he said, get it out of there. When you put something in a trust, folks, you're not literally picking it up and plopping it in this wrapper called a trust. You're just titling the asset. So I wrote to this guy and I said, I don't quite follow what you're saying. In order to quote unquote, and I put it in quotes, quote unquote, put an IRA in a trust, you would have to title the IRA to the trust. Because the I in IRA, I told them, stands for individual. So you could have tried to title your IRA to a trust, but I would have hoped the custodian picked up on that and wouldn't let you do it. So who was the custodian you used to put in an IRA into your trust? And then I also, and I can't remember if I put it in the email to him or not. And if I didn't, he's going to hear it now. Because my next question to him was going to be, how the hell did you take it out? Yeah. You said the CFP told you to get it out of there. I said, once it got titled to the IRA, it's an immediate distribution. Excuse me. Once the IRA got titled to the trust, it's an immediate distribution. Mm -hmm. You can't put it back in. That cat's out of the bag. So he wrote back and he said, I misdescribed what I did. I named my IRA as beneficiary of my trust. And that's what I wanted to clarify today, folks. When you name a beneficiary, excuse, excuse me, when you name a trust as beneficiary of an IRA, that's not the equivalent of putting your IRA in a trust. Make that perfectly clear. Even if you name a trust as beneficiary and then you die, the IRA is not titled to the name of the trust, the beneficiary IRA. It, it is retitled, yes, but it's not retitled in the sense that the IRA now exists inside the trust. The IRA always sits out there. And it's only the money that comes out of the IRA that goes into, literally, into the trust by being put in an account that's titled directly to the ownership of the trust. A beneficiary IRA is still just going to be titled as a beneficiary IRA, indicating it's not the trusts, it's the dead guys. The trust is just the beneficiary. So don't misunderstand that concept. What he did, simply naming 
a trust as beneficiary of his IRA is not the same as putting his IRA in a trust. That would have taken titling the ownership of the IRA to the trust. You don't do that when the trust inherits it as a beneficiary, and you certainly don't do it when you just name a trust as beneficiary of the IRA. And I can't imagine a custodian would allow that to happen. To that, no, that's that why I title. said I want yeah. the way he worded it. I wanted to know the custodian to warn everyone. This mm-hmm. idiot custodian let this happen. Yeah. He quickly clarified yeah. his mistake. So no, it's not irreparable what, harm. Right. So. Back to his his point, the attorney clearly didn't know the tax ramifications of naming his trust as beneficiary of an IRA. He spoke to some CFP somewhere, I'm going to assume in California, and the CFP warned him of the tax issues you're facing, and he went and he did his research. One thing this listener never told me in the two emails we exchanged. What was his purpose of the trust? I don't know. Maybe the attorney and defense of the attorney is not here to defend himself. Maybe the attorney structured the trust to the wishes of this particular person. Because the trust, as the first listener wrote, we're not talking CRTs. And I thought I did make mention of this. But if you truly do want to protect your IRA assets, but you want to leave them to your beneficiaries, not as an income stream through a charitable remainder trust, where at their death, the rest of the money goes to a charity. But instead, you just want them to have the money. And of course, you're not going to do this if you have 40000 or 400000 in an IRA. But if you got a million or two or four, you're definitely going to maybe feel I want to protect these dollars. Either you don't like the spouse your children are married to and you want to keep it away from them, or your children might be in industries that are highly prone to lawsuits, or your kid is a spendthrift. If you give him four million bucks outright, he or she's just going to blow it or worse, become a drug addict. Or maybe they are a drug addict, sadly. And you're trying to keep them sober and clean. And you're worried that if they got all that money, it's just going to ruin them. Money is not a cure for a lot of ills. It causes a lot of ills in people. So there is a purpose for trusts. And again, I apologize for being so dogmatic on the EDU show earlier. I'll concede there is a purpose. But those purposes don't exist for most people. And sadly, most people fall victim to what this listener wrote. Went to an attorney and was just told, oh, I I created a trust for you. Everything is set. Leave the IRA to the trust as well. And the attorney doesn't know the tax cost or because this attorney admitted he didn't. Said, I'm not a tax attorney. I'm just a Joe Blow attorney. Or an attorney may communicate fully the tax cost of that protection and control, but you will deem that to be a reasonable cost to assume to protect those IRA assets, especially if you have a a special needs child, 
or if you have a spendthrift child or a drug addicted child or you hate your in-laws or you're worried they're going to be sued or declare bankruptcy, it might be worth the tax cost. And the tax cost is simple. And I'll sum this up in about three minutes. All money coming from an IRA, we call our accounts. We, we dumb things down in this podcast. We dumb things down for our clients. And the reason is simple. It makes sense. There are only three types of accounts you can have, folks. An account whose money being distributed is always taxable, maybe taxable, never taxable. An IRA, unless it has after-tax basis like we spoke about earlier, but a traditional IRA is always taxable. The money coming out of it will always be taxed as income. So keep that in mind. So when you die, if you got a $4 million IRA, I'll just make that number up. Or $400,000, does not matter. But you got a $4 million in my example. And you got a spendthrift child. Child, for whatever reason, spendthrift, married an idiot you don't like. Whatever the reason, you want to protect that $4 million. You don't want that kid getting it outright. The only way to do it is a trust. Now, there's other things you could have done that go beyond the scope of today's conversation, life insurance, Roth conversions, things like that. But let's just say you didn't do any of that stuff. You got a $4 million traditional IRA. It's going to be taxed as income. That kid's going to have to close it in how many years, Chris? Assuming there's no exemptions? 10 years. 10 years. That's $400,000 a year over 10 years or zero for the first nine and $4 million in the last year. Whatever the case may be, he's got to take some serious dough out of that IRA. And you are worried that that much money and that short a time frame is going to cause some sort of problem. So you create a trust. The trust just receives the money. Since all money from an IRA is considered income, it goes inside the IRA as income. Excuse me, goes inside the trust. Now, the trustee who's a person or an entity that sits between the kid, your beneficiary, and your massive IRA, your trustee sits there and will decide based on things you specify in your trust if the dollars should be distributed or not. You can do it for typical HEMS, health, education, maintenance, and support. You can put parameters on there. If they're being sued, they have no access to it. If they're declaring bankruptcy, they have no access to it. If they're going through a divorce, they have no access to it. If they go back on drugs, they have no access to it. Whatever stipulations you want, you put on there. That's called a discretionary trust. If the trustee holds that $400,000 that has to come out that as a distribution, you get 10 years to close it. I'm just assuming they're going to take 400000 a year for 10 years rather than $4 million for one year. But whatever the case may be, as that $400,000 comes out and goes into the trust, Chris, is that trust liable for the income taxes? If it's held in the trust, yes. Absolutely. Chris is correct. If the trust holds it. But that's the whole reason you created the trust. If you wanted the trust to just give it to the kid, what did you have the trust for in the first place? So the trustee might sit there and say, whoa, because of everything the parents told me and what's going on in the child's life, no, I'm not passing that 400000 out. 
or I'm only passing $20,000 out for him to pay his mortgage and $30,000 for a medical bill. I'm just making this up, but you follow the logic. I'm holding the rest in the trust for his benefit. Well, the IRS is going to step in and say, okay, someone's got to pay that income tax. If you pass the $400,000 straight to the kid, we'll tax it at the kid's taxes or the kid's tax rate. But if you keep it inside the trust, we're going to tax it at trust tax rates. And trust tax rates are the highest in the nation in the sense they're compressed. They're the same tax rates we're subject to as humans, as people, but compressed down. I don't have uh, the the notes in front of me and I'm not Mm -hmm. smart on taxes, but I think to hit the highest, Google it real quick. What income does a single person need, Chris, to hit the highest tax rate. I thought you were going to ask me the trust, so I pulled that up instead. I'm going to ask you both. So do me the, the single kid first. The 400000 passes to the kid. Let's just assume no deductions, no exemptions, lives in a tax-free state. Let's make this real easy for our listeners. Four hundred k passes to the kid. What's the feds going to tax that Single rate individuals in 2024, the highest tax rate, which is 37% currently for a single filer, is at 609350 and above. Okay. So the kid won't even be taxed on that 400000 at the highest rate. Uh, if you have the brackets in there, what's he going to be taxed at? Uh, he'll be in thirty-two. big portion of it at 35. Oh, okay. Because the 35 starts at 243. Uh, and then, you know, obviously below that in the 32, 24, 22, et cetera, as he fills that up. But the, the, the last 150,000 or so of that is going to be taxed at 35. Okay. So that gives you an idea. Now, if the trust holds those tax dollars, those dollars, mm-hmm. The compressed tax rates, how much income does a trust need to receive, Chris, before it pays 37%, which is the current highest tax bracket in America today? A trust faces the 37% rate at $15,200 and above. Did you follow that, folks? Now, y'all who's sitting there saying, well, I'm never going to have a $4 million IRA with a $400,000 distribution. I have a $400,000 IRA with a $40,000 distribution. See, I lulled them, Chris, into a false sense of security. Uh-huh. So you might be sitting there thinking, this isn't going to apply to me. I hope you didn't fast forward to it because it absolutely does. They're going after the, the low and middle classes here, folks. $400,000 is not a lot to have. But for many people, it is. And for many people, they might not want that wealth going to their child outright for any of the reasons that I listed. So they think I'm going to create a trust to protect my child and my money. But now you're 40000 which if it went straight to the kid, which it can't for whatever reason, I bet you that kid is only going to be in the current 12 or 15 at yeah, 40K, at 40,000, they're going to uh, still be in the 12 bracket. 12. Mm-hmm. But a trust is going to pay 37% on $40,000. Well, on twenty. That's why 000, I yeah. said the cost of that protection and control is an outrageous amount of taxes. And I stand by that. But there are times when you may need it. But be very careful, as this listener wrote, 
some attorneys, and I've seen this. I've seen this at a firm that I did respect. This is going back several years where one of their attorneys told someone, to, I created a trust, just name your IRA to the trust. And I was flabbergasted on it because the client didn't need a trust for those IRA assets and hadn't explained or been explained the tax ramifications. So just keep that in mind, uh, everyone. So I, I do appreciate people reaching out. The first listener was correct. I was a little too dogmatic and, and sure in my statement, blanket statement. CRTs do work, but this second listener is also correct when he figured out the cost in taxes of using the trust as beneficiary and the attorney saying to him, well, I'm not a tax attorney. How did I know? Okay. Anyways, enough of that. Do we have time for one more? It's a short one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he's from the state where basketball was invented. I believe that to be Indiana. I would have thought that. And that was the first thing that popped oh, wait into a minute. my mind. Isn't I it, don't vet it, these answers, yeah, folks. Is it Iowa? No, I'm embarrassed. I thought it was a peach basket on somebody's farm. Kansas? Massachusetts, according to this guy. What? That's what I said. I grew up in Massachusetts. I didn't know basketball was invented there. Hmm. I'm going to Google that. That might require talking. a Google. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This question, if you listen to it, Chris, I think he's confusing a MIGA annuity, multi-year guaranteed annuity, folks, with a SPIA annuity, single premium immediate annuity, because he writes, Chris, in regards to having a MIGA or multi-year guaranteed annuity, folks, inside an IRA, which you've discussed in the past, you mentioned that this Annuity could serve as the required minimum distribution. Let me pause there. MIGAs do not provide any income. They can because they're an annuity and you could annuitize it. But you buy a multi-year guaranteed annuity to act very similar to a bank CD minus the FDIC insurance, obviously where you give money to an insurance company for three, four, five, six, seven years, however long you buy it, and they guarantee to pay you a certain amount of interest every year. They don't pay out. When they credit the interest, the interest stays inside the annuity. Even if the annuity is inside an IRA wrapper, the interest stays inside the annuity, hence inside the IRA. You don't annuitize it. You never lose access and control to those dollars inside the multi-year guaranteed annuity. There is a penalty period. So if you bought a three-year annuity, you have a three-year penalty period, a five-year annuity, a five-year penalty period. The dollars are liquid. You can still get them. You're just going to give up some of them so nobody really cashes them in during the hold period. But you could if you wanted to. It's not annuitized. You don't lose access to it. A single premium immediate annuity, that's different. That's when you give money to an insurance company and you don't have access to it anymore. We've talked about this. These are the types of annuities that Chris and I like. They're like the term insurance of annuities. They're the cheapest annuity you can buy. It's the most straightforward lifetime stream of income you can get. You put that money in and 
payments begin within 13 months. That's why they're called single premium immediate annuities. So what we talked about, listener, in the past, in a SPIA, go pre-secure, Chris, when you answer this, I'm going to hand it to you. Pre-secure, pre-secure two, as a matter of fact. When you had a SPIA inside an IRA, you annuitize that money in the IRA. It's no longer yours. You get income instead, no matter how long you live. Even if you live 20 years past the point where the insurance company had already given you back all your money and you live another 20 years, they got to still pay you those dollars. Pre-secure to Chris, the money being distributed from that IRA annuity, as far as RMD rules go, was what? The distribution itself, whatever dollar amount that was, was considered to be the RMD. And essentially, although we talk about IRAs as being one big IRA, it's almost like they carved off the annuity in the IRA, made it its own little thing with its own RMD equal to the payments. And no part of that annuity was included in RMD calculations for the rest of your IRA. Correct. And that's because, as Chris rightly pointed out, the tax code at the time treated an IRA, which it still does, as a defined contribution essential plan, where you put money in, you're defining the contribution going in, and the payout is unknown. But immediately upon annuitization of an IRA, it is now considered a defined benefit plan. Hence, it was no longer aggregated with your other IRAs. It was considered a defined benefit plan, which is a traditional pension that pays a lifetime stream of income. If you have a pension, that doesn't affect your 401k contributions at all. It doesn't affect your RMDs from your 401k with that employer at all. They are two separate beasts. One's a defined contribution plan. One's a defined benefit plan. When you annuitize pre-secure two, pre-last year, pre-secure two, it said immediately upon annuitization, your defined contribution IRA is now essentially considered a defined benefit IRA. Those two do not aggregate. Those are oil and water. They have nothing to do with each other. So the distribution from your IRA annuity, your IRA SPIA, is the RMD for that IRA slash SPIA and that IRA slash SPIA alone. That has changed under Secure 2. But this has nothing to do with a MIGA listener. It's a SPIA we were talking about. And I know he was thinking SPIA, not MIGA. But he asks this next question, where I finally got to talk about this a few months ago. He must have missed it. He says, if you are not at your required minimum distribution age yet, though. Will the payments that come out of the IRA be treated as a normal distribution? If one is of RMD age, will the payout eventually bring that IRA to a zero balance? couple of things. The first thing, if you are not at RMD age, yes, he is correct. Those dollars are considered just a normal distribution. 
And a lot of you might be thinking, and he didn't go this way, but maybe that's where he was thinking of going. Well, if I'm not at RMD age yet, that's now 73 or 75. If I'm not there yet, I'm only in my 50s or 60s, and I've annuitized my IRA, and I'm getting this money, and it's considered a distribution. It's a withdrawal. It's coming out. Can't I just put it right back into a IRA? Or better yet, into a Roth? Can I just like convert that? It's just a withdrawal. It's just a distribution. You would hope you could. We were asked this not too long ago. And the law is pretty explicit, right in the Internal Revenue Code. Any annuity IRA that has been annuitized for a period of 10 years or more, life or 10 years and more, cannot be rolled over. So no, you wouldn't be, he didn't ask that, but in case he was going there, you cannot do it because you said you took this out over your lifetime. If you quote unquote annuitize an annuity for a period of time of your life or 10 years and longer, because you don't have to annuitize over your life. You can annuitize for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, and then the payments stop, or you can annuitize it for your life. You get choices there. 10 years or more or your life cannot be rolled over. And then his final question, wouldn't the IRA eventually reach a zero balance? When you annuitize an IRA, folks, it's a zero balance uh, right away. If you put $300,000 into a single premium media annuity that's inside an IRA wrapper, you don't have access to those dollars anymore. It's essentially a zero balance, if you will. So there's no dollars left in the IRA, which makes... What Secure did, a little bit difficult. And I know Chris has to wrap up because he's got things to do. So I won't get into Section 204. But I will bring Section 204 of the Secure Act up because it essentially takes what I just said, that under the pre-secure, when you annuitize, you essentially took a defined contribution IRA and turned it into a defined benefit IRA, which didn't mix and kept them separate. They've gotten rid of that. So when you annuitize an IRA now, you will be able to use excess payments from that annuity beyond what you would have had to take if you never annuitized it in the first place and use those excess to offset annuity payments, excuse me, RMD payments from your other IRAs. They Remove that Chinese wall between them. The difficulty is they didn't give any guidance on how to value the net present value of that lifetime stream of income, which will change every year. But once you can quantify that net present value, you can determine the RMD and take the difference and offset future RMDs. We'll get into that deeper on another show. Yeah. Well, in closing, basketball, according to my research was in fact invented in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1891 by, and you know, James Naismith. So we all, that, that most people are familiar with, but I could have sworn that that was how that happened in Indiana, not in Massachusetts. How did Indiana then become the number one state like for basketball? You always think of Indiana when you hear basketball. Or I, Kentucky. They, they just got Kentucky. Really Kentuckians true. love that that blue devil thing. Well, there. They just got really that, good at it. And then there was the whole Hoosiers story, which is Indiana. So maybe that's what skewed everybody after the movie Hoosier, Hoosiers came out. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks, James Naismith, 1891. All uh, right. There was a peach basket, so I had that part right in my brain. But uh, yeah, there you go. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the questions as well. That's what makes this particular show go is having access to these questions you so kindly send to us if you want to send in your own question send it to jim directly jim at jimhelps.com is the email address that's jim h-e-l-p-s.com and put in the subject line it's a question for the podcast if uh, you have a particularly uh, interesting question or it's something we've never covered on the show i think that does increase your chances of getting it addressed sooner than later, but we do tend to uh, uh, pluck at least one question out every week that has come in very recently. So you have your, a chance for your question to be answered very quickly, or like one of our listeners today, you might have to wait three years to get your two question. Two years, two years and two months. <laughs> two and have, two. Might have to wait two years and two months to get your question answered, or uh, there's some that we never get to. We just have to admit that. there's We can't answer every single question, but... Uh, we do appreciate those of you who take the time to send in those questions and uh, also appreciate you listening to our answers. Uh, do keep them short. When I see email questions come in that are a page or more, it's just hard for Chris and I. We don't have the time to sit there and read it all. And it, that invariably means there's about six questions embedded in it. Mm-hmm. And unless we think it could be an EDU show and we feel we need a good topic, yeah. those long, long ones are hard for us to answer. Perfect. So thanks, Jim, for joining me again. Have a nice weekend, and we'll be back next week with everybody else with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 